Oral questions by members? Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Today in the gallery, there are a number of families who have children with autism. They wanted to come to Victoria today to ensure that every single MLA in this chamber understands how concerned they are about the recently announced changes that may impact the support that they have worked so tirelessly to put in place for their children. They represent thousands of parents across this province, but they're here to ensure that every MLA and the minister hears their story. Vanessa Taylor and her husband Ryan and their children are here today. This is what Vanessa wants the minister to know, and I quote, I have been listening intently to the minister to commit, committing to provide the proverbial magic bullet, while at the same time pointedly singling out every single autistic child, including my own two. The minister would be mistaken to think that I am not offended to hear her repeatedly use false justifications to take my individualized funding away." End quote. So today, will the minister listen to Vanessa, to her family, other parents that are in the gallery and across British Columbia, do the right thing and reverse her decision? Minister of Children and Family Development. Oh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Nothing's more important than making sure that vulnerable children and youth across the province of British Columbia receive the services that they need. They need to receive those services as early as possible, and they need to receive them in a way that meets their needs and, and is matched to their needs, so that their needs are met and they're able to thrive and they're able to be launched into a, a wonderful pathway to fulfill their potential. As we move into the implementation of the new framework, Families with children with autism will continue to receive services and they will continue to receive services under the new framework. And in addition, Honourable Speaker, uh, families with children who currently don't receive services but do have needs will also be able to receive services. And Honourable Speaker, families with children where there's a concern that they might have autism and they're waiting for a diagnosis for autism that can take up to a couple of years those children and youth will also receive services irrespective of that diagnosis, but based on their needs. And by providing those services based on the unique needs of those children and youth, we are going to help them thrive, we're going to help them meet their goals, and we're going to build success for their future. Leader of the Official Opposition, Supplemental. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, for weeks now, we've been asking the Minister the same questions, and we hear the same answer. And we've been very clear in our questions that this is not about uh, only autistic children in British Columbia. It's about children and families who are supporting children who have special needs. This minister continues to say that we need to meet and match their needs. And what we are saying, and what, more importantly, what parents are saying today to this minister is, they know how to do that best. They have spent countless years, in many cases, providing supports that are necessary, and they are working. 
Not the families or the opposition have ever said that it is either or for families in British Columbia. There is a system that is working, and this minister and government should be building on that system to close the gaps and better serve all families who have those needs. That's the message that's been delivered day after day to this minister. This week, 24 diverse organizations from across the disability sector, 24 organizations, and it continues to grow, met to discuss the NDP's clawback of funding. This is what they have to say, and I quote, our organizations representing over 30,000 families in British Columbia unanimously confirm that we were not consulted on these changes. We continue to point out dangerous flaws in the minister's plans, but she continues to disregard our experience and our expertise. Not my words, not the words of the opposition, the words of a, a coalition representing 30,000 families in British Columbia. Families and representatives are here in the gallery today. Their ask is reasonable. Their ask is appropriate. What they want this minister to do is to press the pause button and engage in meaningful consultation with thousands of families who have not had the opportunity to say a single thing about changes that will impact their children. So to the minister, again, will she do the right thing? Will she press the pause button and engage in meaningful consultation so that any changes that may need to take place are done in consultation, collaboration, and partnership with parents? Minister. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Um, it is very important to make sure that we're working in partnership with parents and in collaboration with uh, agencies, service providers, experts and, and advocates from the sector. Um, we value uh, the experience and the feedback that we're receiving. receiving. Um, and this process started back in 2019, where we did a large process of consultation with over 1,500 individuals that included families and agencies and service providers. Um, and, and we all were also listening to the representative for children and youth who has written numerous reports recommending to the ministry that we move towards a needs-based system and pointing out the problems with the current system. We've heard from many, many families that their children are left behind and that services are locked behind a diagnosis and it can take up to two years to receive a diagnosis. Well, honorable speaker, if your child is two or three when you notice that you may have a concern about their development, that's a long time in that child's life where they're missing, potentially missing milestones and important stages of their development. We are now at this point in the journey working through this process up to 2025, Honourable Speaker. And we are now establishing sessions where families, where service providers, where um, experts from the sector can have really detailed discussion with ministry staff and uh, share feedback and share concerns and share discussions about solutions. We want to build a successful system that serves the needs of all children and youth. And I've been continuing to listen to a range of organizations and agencies across the province who have an interest and who have um, expertise in this area. And I am committed to continuing to do that in the interest of making sure this is successful. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, uh, the minister says it's very important uh, to be working with the families, but we've heard over and over and over again that those families haven't been consulted or had discussions. Uh, and we already have uh, uh, heard that the 1,500 parents consulted and the representative for children and youth never discussed the hub model that's being proposed in the new CYSN framework. The families here today want the minister to meaningfully consult with children and youth that will lose their funding because of this clawback. Nathan Lee, who is 16 years old, and he writes, if I were to lose my funding at this stage, as some kids will under the new system, I would struggle even more in the areas I've worked so hard on improving, end quote. Madison Ross, 12 years old, and her MLA is the member from Burnaby Lougheed. She says, quote, please don't take away my funding, end quote. So will the minister listen to the voices of these youth who are calling on her to end the clawback, go back and change and reverse the decision? Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and yes, we will be listening to um, children and youth as well as their families. It is absolutely important that we wrap a circle of care around children and youth that is based on their needs. They need the right services at the right times, and as they grow and develop and evolve, those services need to change in consultation and in partnership with them as well. So um, what we will be doing as we move to the transition is we'll be working with families. We'll be working with children and youth. We'll be working with their care providers and their package of care. If they're fortunate to have been able to uh, create a system of care around their needs, then we'll be working with each individual family because each child and youth is unique. They have their own needs and we need to build that, that package of care and support around them. But we do need to be needs-based, honorable speaker. Even the uh, all-party select standing committee on children and youth, um, when it conducted a special project on children and youth with neurodiverse special needs in 2019, recommended that government ensure services and supports in the early years are based on need and functional ability and provided prior to diagnosis. The committee recognized that neurodiversity, regardless of a diagnosis, exists on a spectrum and as such, each neurodiverse child is unique and requires their own intervention plan, which best supports the child and their individual needs. That's exactly what our service framework will be delivering. Member for Westman, Cobra Capilano, supplemental. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. It's unfortunate that uh, the minister cannot see the faces of the families that are sitting in the gallery today as she speaks. The minister talks about a circle of care and the importance of a circle of care. Well, these children already have a circle of care. Kay Benez is here today with her husband, Vince. She says, quote, our children, Lazarus and Estella, and over 15,000 children are currently enrolled in IDL schools. We are extremely troubled and distressed about the changes that threaten to take our children away from the only inclusive education environment that works for them. Please do not take away the schools that are shaping our children's character, values, culture, potential, and their love of learning." End quote. On October 21st, the education minister told Autism BC she was considering a one-year delay. Will the minister publicly commit today 
that she will pause her changes and meaningfully consult with parents. Minister. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker, and thank you very much uh, to the member for the question. I know that we all share uh, in this House a commitment to ensuring that all children in British Columbia have access to a quality online uh, program. Uh, if, uh, if that is what, what parents choose and if that's what students choose. And that indeed is the objective of the changes that, are, uh, that we are contemplating to our online programming is to ensure that as that program has developed uh, over the years, that we ensure we have common standards, common quality and equal access across uh, the entire province for all of British Columbia students. And so we have been since uh, for many years now uh, reviewing our online programming. We've been engaged in, uh, in discussions with families, with organizations uh, who, uh, who, are, who advocate for students who are enrolled in these programs. And we are, uh, we are certainly looking at a transition period that ensures that all of the needs of uh, families and children involved in this program um, are, are, are properly supported so that if indeed there are transitions that, that, uh, that need to be made, that those are properly supported. That will take, care, that will take place over the next two to, two to three years. Uh, and I think as, as, uh, as uh, the members know from, uh, from earlier briefings that we have had, uh, with, uh, with members, uh, the changes contemplated for, uh, for the uh, independent programs have been uh, uh, extended out so that we can ensure that we're providing uh, those, uh, those supports for those transitions. Thanks very much. Leader of the third party. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. The rain has subsided, but the impacts of the climate disaster in our province continue. The Coquihalla has been washed away in multiple sections. Highway 7, Highway 1, Highway 99, Highway 3 have all been impacted. The Malahat remains impacted. They have either been flooded, buried in slides, or washed away. People are working around the clock to get the highways and roads cleared, to save people who are trapped, and to stop the water from rising catastrophically in the Fraser Valley, and to the emergency workers, highway maintenance crews, municipal workers, and good Samaritans. We say thank you. Honourable Speaker, I've been reading the future of atmospheric rivers and actions to reduce impacts of British Columbians, a project delivered in partnership with the BC Ministry of Environment, Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions and Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium in 2014. It identifies that atmospheric rivers will be more frequent and more extreme, particularly in coastal British Columbia, and that the following impacts were identified as greatest concern, mortality, isolation of communities, and loss of critical infrastructure. Three of the recommendations from the report are about infrastructure, to develop maps of critical infrastructure, assess the vulnerability of critical infrastructure, and relocate critical infrastructure where needed. My question is for you. Honourable speakers, to the Minister of Transportation, what work has his ministry done in the past two years to assess the state of critical infrastructure in BC and to pinpoint the potential fault lines of our highways and roads. Minister of Transportation. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question. And if I could pick up where she began, uh, praising the efforts of British Columbians who have opened their doors and opened their hearts to one another, seeing each other in very difficult circumstances, flooded out of their communities, uh, and uh, put on a Herculean effort 
to make people welcome and to shelter in place. Uh, our thanks go to every British Columbian who has been part of that effort. There are thousands of volunteers that are engaged right now in doing that. There are men and women who have worked in heavy rescue uh, teams who have, uh, are working on uh, road maintenance contractor crews that are working to restore rail and highway connectivity. And, uh, and it's our job as the government to uh, coordinate every resource possible. Uh, emergency response, coordination with the federal government, working with uh, engineers, with contractors and others to restore connectivity because right now, as the member knows, the lower mainland and the interior north of the province uh, are severed through our highway systems. I am pleased to have been able to provide uh, an update to the province along with the Premier and the Minister of uh, the Solicitor General and the Minister of Agriculture earlier, some news uh, that does give a timeline, which everybody is eager to have about uh, when that connectivity might be restored and we are looking and hopefully we'll have an update for the member and all members in the House later today on Highway 7. Finally getting a connection from Agassiz to, to, to Hope. Highway 3, the work is in earnest to have an interior route that will connect uh, the lower mainland of British Columbia. Highway 99, uh, work is progressing uh, and we will have an update uh, by the end of today on what the projected uh, opening date is on that highway and of course as she mentioned, uh, the Highway 1, Malahat, uh, is functioning. It's, it's supported now by uh, additional uh, uh, ferry service that is going from Schwartz Bay to Duke Point to make sure that essential goods and services and travel uh, can happen and that the South Island is connected to the, to the Mid and North Island. The issue around uh, resiliency of infrastructure is one that our government has worked for the past four years since forming government. We worked with her and her caucus in the previous uh, Thank mandate. You, Mr to uh, increase uh, the budget and resources for uh, strengthened road networks, to shift towards uh, uh, sustainable transportation topics. It's a $7.6 billion infrastructure budget today. And as I've said to the member earlier, as I've said to the member earlier, uh, we will uh, spare no expense and, and dedicate every resource possible to rebuild and recover the infrastructure that British Columbians built. They are eager to work with our government to rebuild the BC that they built in the first place, Mr. Speaker. Leader of the Third Party Supplemental. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and, and I uh, thank the Minister for his response. It was about 90% about the reactive response. Uh, and what I was asking about was proactive work that has been done in response to multiple uh, reports that we have had over decades about the impacts of climate change. The Port of Vancouver has been cut off from the rest of the province. We're already seeing the impacts of food shortages, panic buying in grocery stores, gas shortages. Videos and photos from last night show the desperation and concern of British Columbians in being able to feed their families. There's a line of people wrapped around a Fraser Valley Walmart three times over. Shelves in Prince Rupert, Kamloops, and even Victoria are empty. And Gurdwaras in Surrey have rented helicopters to fly food to those stranded in hope. Sumas Perry is flooded near catastrophic levels, according to the local government. The Fraser Valley produces 50% of this province's dairy, eggs, and chicken. And tragically, many livestock will not have survived. This is devastating for farmers and for this province. And people need to hear from this government what concrete steps are being taken to ensure that there will be food available in the weeks and months ahead. My question, Honourable Speaker, is to the Minister of Agriculture. What are the contingencies for our supply chains of food across BC, and how has the Ministry prepared for events like this? Minister of Agriculture. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you for this uh, very, very important question. Um, this is a devastating time for farmers in BC, especially those in the Fraser Valley. Um, we have spent days communicating with hundreds of stakeholders around the situation. Uh, and I can tell the member that as we reach people, because this is still playing out, they're glad to hear from us. They, they know we have their back, but when we ask them what we can do in the immediacy, they're, they're lost for an idea because it's still happening. As things change, especially over the last 12 hours, we've seen some areas dry out, but there's some areas that are under threat. And the areas uh, that are under threat include thousands of barn, or thousands of poultry in barns, um, more dairy cows, all different types of, of animals that are trapped in barns, they are uh, injured, they are getting sick because they've been in cold waters, and we see the desperation of farmers trying to save their livestock, trying to move them from one barn to another. And the, the efforts are heroic, and I can't, I can't even express how thankful I am that we have such a resilient agriculture community. But to the member's question, what are we doing to make sure we have a resilient food supply? My ministry, we're, the members across the way are, are thinking I'm taking too long to talk about a disaster that's unfolding in the members, province of British Columbia. Let's listen to Continue, Minister. Thank you. The, minister, the members might be interested to know the stories of the farmers. It's playing out right now. Right now. Order. Members. Order. Conclude, please. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, my ministry works every day on the issue of resiliency and sustainability when it comes to our agriculture food system in BC. Um, I can tell the member that there is a lot of enthusiastic shopping that's going on. We wish that people would, would um, be measured in their purchases. It's not necessarily about the fact that we're going to run out of food. We are rejigging ways to distribute it right now. We're working with suppliers, uh, and we will be able to do that. We won't run out of food Thank as you. a province. Um, this province is a strong supporter of supply management, Mr. Speaker, and we know that because of our national producers, where we are not able to produce, other provinces will help us out until we get back Thanks, on our feet. Minister. Member for Fraser Nicola. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Since 2019, emergency alerts have been issued 80 times in Alberta, 101 times in Saskatchewan, and 202 times in Ontario. In British Columbia, zero. We are alone as the only province not to use emergency alert to provide advance warning to British Columbians. Not after the devastating forest fires of 2018, not for the deadly heat dome which claimed 600 lives, not for this summer's destructive wildfires that raised Lytton to the ground, 
and now not even for the devastating floods and landslides that we face right now. Can the minister tell us when and why this government chooses not to use emergency alerts? Minister of Public Safety. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, uh, and I thank the member for the question. And as the member will know, because she has asked before, that this government has committed to putting in place the use of the emergency alert system uh, to be able to do much more uh, condensed notification uh, on specific emergencies um, uh, in place for next year, starting in the central interior. Uh, as the member will also know, um, there are a variety of alerts that are used by communities in the province. And one of the things we have to ensure is that any system that is put in place in this province is compatible with that which is used by uh, local government and to avoid duplication. And we are working with those communities and First Nations to ensure that we will have a system uh, using that first alert uh, that when it's in place, it works. I'd also remind the member this. It is a tool. It is just one tool in terms of notifications that are used throughout the province. It is not a silver bullet, and the member knows that. Uh, we have committed that one will be in place uh, starting in the central interior for next summer. Member for Fraser Nicolad, supplemental. As the minister will know, I'm very aware of a lot of the devastation that has happened in this province. But I would remind the minister, Alberta managed to warn the people of the severe weather event this weekend. So did Washington State. This government did nothing. They learned not a single lesson from the heat dome or the forest fires. And British Columbians are paying the price for this government's incompetence. How bad does it have to get before the government actually uses an emergency alert system? Minister of Public Safety. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I appreciate the question from the member. But I will, remember, I will remind the member of this. Their significant work took place uh, in advance and during this storm. There were updates in terms, there were, there were updates on Drive BC where people get drive information. St stream flow and flood warnings in place uh, and communicated to local governments. Communication between EMBC and local communities. At the same time, um, communication between myself and the, the federal government. This was a, um, a rain uh, event, a weather event of unprecedented, unprecedented proportions. Local governments had crews out all weekend. Transportation and highways had crews out all weekend. Members. And I will tell you something else, Honourable Speaker. Then when it comes to the use of alert, and the member talked about the flooding uh, that's taken place in Abbotsford, this province was, the EMBC was in constant communication with the city of Abbotsford. I was in constant communication with the mayor of Abbotsford. They asked to be able to use uh, uh, an alert. Uh, one was put together in place. We were ready to send it. They then said, no, we don't need to do it at this point, and we will ask you when to do it. And I will tell you this, Honourable Speaker, you know, I find it really interesting on a situation involving flooding, and I'm giving a detailed answer, that they really don't want to listen. 
Because I'll tell you this, Honourable Speaker, when it comes to putting in place the alert, uh, when and how to use an alert, I will always rely on the expertise of the people on the ground, like the rescue people in Abbotsford, like the mayor in Abbotsford, who knew exactly what they wanted to do and when they wanted to do it, and those are how decisions will be made. And they will never be based on, on, on Twitter. They will always Members, be based on expertise of people who know exactly what order. they're doing and when it needs to be done. Members, let's have the courtesy of asking questions and listening to the answer and vice versa, please. Member for Abbotsford South. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This, this is a tragedy on unparalleled scale. Dire weather forecasts were clear on Friday. On the U.S. side of the border, a flood warning was issued for the Nooksack River on Sunday at 3.40 p.m. On Monday, Governor Jay Inslee issued a severe weather emergency proclamation and implemented emergency procedures. The U.S. flood sirens in Sumas, Washington could be heard in Abbotsford. This area is home to a huge population of livestock, poultry, farmers that provide, as we've heard, on the low end, 50% of the food for British Columbia. And despite being reminded of the risk on Monday, zero steps were taken to initiate an evacuation plan that could have saved thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of animals. The Emergency Proclamation Act says the duties of the Agriculture Minister are to, quote, coordinate the emergency evacuation and care of poultry and livestock, end quote. My question to the Minister is now that we're in the thick of it, now that it's too late, what resources are being devoted now to ensure that there is feed and water for the animals that actually have survived. What's being done now, today? Minister. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I appreciate the, uh, the question uh, from the member. And I can tell the member right from the beginning, emergency officials in communities right across the, uh, the, the lower part of the province in the Fraser Valley started to enact emergency plans. Resources being deployed by EMBC at the local level to deal with the situation as it developed. Rescuing people, ensuring that we are able to cope and that communities are able to cope. We're taking... Abs right from the get-go, Honourable Speaker, whether it was the Joint Rescue uh, Coordination Centre dispatching the, uh, the cormorant helicopters to come and get uh, people who were trapped between the, uh, the, the slides on the very day that that storm started, right through last night, uh, getting people in terms of the evacuation order, 
Every resource is being deployed and will continue to be deployed to deal with this situation. And the idea that that is not taking place is simply wrong. The balance question period.